You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on July 15th, 2018. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to remember back to your school days for a moment, and especially to gym class. And in gym class, there was this, there probably still is, I'm sure it still exists, this practice of picking teams. And so you'd get two people that would end up being the team captains, and you'd have the pool of people in the gym class, and they would go back and forth picking people until the teams for the day were chosen, and then you'd go play basketball or soccer or baseball or whatever it was. Now, the thing about picking teams this way is that the fastest, strongest, smartest people are always the ones chosen first. And the less skilled, slower, weaker ones are always chosen last. And I was usually one of the last ones picked. Sports was not the place where I excelled in my youth. Uh, And so as, as one of the last ones picked, that never feels good when you're standing there waiting to be chosen, waiting to be on the team, waiting to figure out which team you're going to be on, knowing that you're not going to be an asset to the team, that you're actually going to be more of a detriment to the team, and that they're going to welcome you but uh, put you out in left field somewhere. That's the position I usually played in baseball anyway. This is the the reality of gym class, uh, especially for those on the, the lower end of that system. Now, the amazing thing about the passage from Ephesians today is that God chose us. God chose me. God chose each one of you. And this is an extraordinary reality. And it's a reality that goes back 
a very long time. We read in Ephesians today, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about that for a second. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. That means before God made the Grand Canyon, he chose you. Before the Gulf of Mexico was created, God chose you. Before Mount Everest, God chose you. Before the fall, before Adam and Eve, God chose you. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. And so we are chosen people. Not the last picked, but the first picked from the foundations of the world. God loves you that much that he chose you and he wanted to be in relationship with you. And then it goes on to say in verse 5 that he predestined us. It says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of Jesus Christ. Now it's easy to get bogged down in the doctrine of predestination. And faithful Christians through the centuries have been debating the particulars of this doctrine for ages. It's hard to deny that the doctrine of predestination is a biblical one, but how we parse it out, how we understand it, uh, that has gone back and forth for a very long time. And so just to review briefly, uh, the two main orthodox positions on this matter are, first of all, the Augustinian or Calvinist position, which goes all the way back to St. Augustine uh, in the, the early centuries of the church. But it was revived uh, by Calvin and others at the time of the Reformation. And in this position, all of us, every single person, is totally incapable of responding to God. And so God chooses some of humanity and saves them, allowing them to respond and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we are all totally depraved. We're all fully incapable of turning to God by our own strength and choosing him. And so God, in his mercy, reaches out to us and plucks us up out of the muck and the mire, and he saves us. He chooses us. He predestines us. Now, the merit of this position is that, first of all, it preserves God's sovereignty. That God is in charge of everything. That he rules over all of creation. And it also emphasizes the giftedness of grace. The fact that grace is not something that we earn, and not even the decision itself to turn to Christ and accept him as our Savior is a decision that we make on our own. It's not a work. And so our salvation is not dependent on us. It's entirely dependent on the grace and mercy of God, which is a beautiful thing. Now, on the other end of this spectrum is a guy named Arminius, uh, who uh, we actually don't have his, his own writings preserved he didn't speak on this in his own lifetime, but after his lifetime, uh, some of his doctrines were preserved and, and put into some writings. And this is uh, the, also the, the Wesleyan part, um, position. So uh, Charles Wesley, the Methodists, um, they are in this Arminian camp. And the Arminian Wesleyan position sees predestination as foreknowledge. God knew ahead of time who would respond to his grace, who would choose him, and who would not. 
And so those who are predestined are those whom God knew ahead of time would already choose him. And in this position, similar to the Calvinist position, all are totally incapable of responding to God. Our sin is so deep, our sin is so grave, we are so far gone from original righteousness, as it says in the 39 Articles, that there's no way that we can turn to God in our own strength and choose him. So there's a similarity there between the two positions. But the difference is that in the Arminian or Wesleyan position, God sends his Holy Spirit to give us provenient grace, grace that goes before us. And that provenient grace frees our will just enough that we can make a choice either for or against God, either to accept his salvation or to turn away from him and reject him. And this provenient grace uh, is available to everyone. Available to everyone because of what Jesus has done for us. Um, And the elect are thus those who have positively responded to God or who will in time positively respond to God because of his provenient grace, freeing up their will just enough that they can turn to him and choose him. And the merit of this position is that it preserves the idea of free will, and it preserves the idea of human responsibility, and it preserves uh, the sense of judgment, because if God is judging us, it doesn't seem fair that God would judge us for something that we had no control over. And so on this position, it makes better sense of passages where God asks people to repent, or where God asks people to obey, or where God tells people that they must believe. Because all of those have an element of choice, an element of our own responsibility in responding to God's saving grace. So that we have the the Augustinian, Calvinist position, we have the Arminian, Wesleyan position on the other hand. And in the end, both positions are grounded in the scriptures. And both positions have theological advantages and disadvantages. When it comes down to it, in the very end, I think this is a doctrine that we should be careful not to define too specifically. Because then we get into the danger of trying to define God's mystery. An election, predestination when it comes down to it, is a mystery. And we do our best to grope at these things and and grasp them as best we can. We do our best to make sense of what the scriptures tell us. But in things like this, the scriptures are trying to describe for us something that is beyond our comprehension, something that is beyond our knowing. And so sometimes it's important to just step back after reflecting carefully on the scriptures and what they tell us and just stand in awe of the awesomeness of God. Stand in awe at his grace and his mercy and his salvation. And the thing about this doctrine of election or predestination is that the specifics of how we are predestined or how we are elected are far less important than the benefits given to us through it. And that's where I think we should focus much more of our time and attention and thought and energy. The doctrine of predestination is intended to be a comfort to those who are elect, not as a warning or a a scare tactic for those who are not elect. And so it's not a a doctrine that you use against somebody, right? It's a doctrine that you use to take comfort in what God has done for you. Not so much reflecting on how you became a Christian 
or how God saved you, but just delighting in the fact that God chose you before the foundations of the world to be a part of his elect community. And so if you are here and if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a part of the, the elect and you can rejoice in that. That's a wonderful thing. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, then by all means, I encourage you to do so because there's no more important decision, no more important thing you could do in your life than welcome God into your heart and accept him as your savior. And so if you've never done that, please come and talk to me about it. I'd love to guide you through that if that's something that God is tugging on your heart to do. As it says in in Hebrews and in the Psalms, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The other thing is that all who are saved are saved by faith. And Paul tells us in Romans that faith comes by hearing. And so one of the dangers I see in this doctrine of predestination is that we might say, well, God's already decided ahead of time who's going to be a part of the elect and who's not. So what's the point in in mission anyway? There's no point to evangelism. There's no point to reaching out. There's no point to going to Africa or, or going to Middleburg or wherever God is sending you to go to preach his gospel and to save those who are lost. There's no point to it. But there is a point to it because faith comes by hearing. And to hear the gospel, someone has to share the gospel. People have to be sent. That's the point of what Paul is saying in Romans. And so regardless of of how God ends up choosing us or electing us, regardless of whether God knows ahead of time or not, well, he does know ahead of time, one way or the other, but regardless of that, we need to be preaching Christ to everyone. Because it's God who predestines. It's God who elects It's God who foreknows, not us. And so our responsibility is to be obedient to him and to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a burden on all of us. And it's not changed by this doctrine of predestination. So, you're thinking, maybe, we're chosen, but what are we chosen for? What's the point of this? Does God have a basketball team in heaven? Is that, is that what we're getting into? It's not a basketball team, uh, but we are chosen for something in particular. And as I said before, there's some profit in wondering how we are chosen, but there's much more benefit in understanding why we're chosen or what we are chosen for. So first of all, God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. That's what it says in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now there's a problem there, right? You might be thinking, I'm not holy and blameless. So if God chose me and I'm not holy and blameless, there's an incongruency there. There's There's a gap between God's expectation and the reality of my life. But here's the thing. God didn't choose you because you are holy and blameless. God chose you so you could become holy and blameless. And this is where God's choosing is so different from choosing in the gym locker room or choosing on the the basketball court. On the basketball court, you get chosen because you can shoot hoops, because you can run faster, because you can slam dunk. 
But in God's kingdom, you're not chosen because of what you can do. You're chosen because of God's love for you. God chooses you not because you are holy and blameless, but so that you can become holy and blameless. And he does this in two ways. The first is that we are justified. We are declared righteous before God. This is a a legal term. I've told you about this before. But it means a verdict of not guilty. Even though you stand before the judge guilty, the judge stands there and he says, not guilty. It's a legal declaration of your status before God. And so when we are justified, we are declared not guilty before God. If we look at verses 7 and 8, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God doesn't just give us a little bit. He lavishes his grace upon us. That's amazing. And here it's clear that the people that Paul is speaking to, which includes us, are not holy and blameless. They are people who stand in need of forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through the blood of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God. And so that's what justification is all about. God takes us as wretched, as awful, as sinful as we are, He looks on us with love, and he saves us by the blood of Jesus. He declares us not guilty. And then we pass from death to life. But the second way that God makes us holy and blameless is a process. It doesn't happen instantly like justification does. It's not a a, a one thing or the other thing. It's a process, and it takes a whole lifetime. And that process is called sanctification. Sanctification is growth in holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not through our own striving. It's not that we wrestle and work and we weed out sin in our own lives. It's that God in his mercy sends his Holy Spirit into us to change us from the inside out. To do in our hearts what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. And so God sanctifies us. He makes us progressively more holy. And this process is not done until you die. That's when your your final perfection will happen. That's when we get to heaven and there's no more sin, there's no more crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more terribleness. All of that has passed away, it says in the scriptures. But for now, we're still growing. And that explains the sin that's still in our lives. Even as we're on our way to being holy and blameless, even as we are, even now, chosen by God, We are not yet perfect. We are still sinners. We're still in need of his grace. And we're still growing in the Holy Spirit towards God. And this choosing happens in love. It says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Again, not because of what we've done, but because he loves us and because of what he desires to do for each one of us. So we are chosen to be holy and blameless before him. We are chosen also to be adopted. It says in verse 5, 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What does it mean to be adopted? It means a child that once had no parents now has parents. A child that once had no family now has a family. A person who was once lonely and estranged now has people. That's amazing. And the adopted child has the same status legally as the child of birth in that family. They have the same rights, the same privileges, the same responsibilities as any birth child in that family. It's another declaration, like guilty, not guilty, family, no family, or no family, family. To be adopted as sons means we get to be grafted in to God's family. We get to be God's own children. He welcomes us in. He makes us his sons and daughters. How amazing to think that those who are in Christ are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's remarkable. And that's who we are in Christ. We are his sons and daughters, his children, part of his family. He welcomes us in. He gives gives us all of the status, all of the rights, all of the privileges of being in that family, just as if we were born into it. And then finally, we are chosen to praise him and give him glory. We actually see this three different times in this passage with almost exactly the same Greek phrase. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. When God, in his mercy, reaches out and saves people, it is to his glory. It glorifies him. It demonstrates his mercy and it it declares his righteousness to all the world. It declares his glory to all the world. And so the response of our salvation, the response of our being chosen, is to turn outward back to God and give him praise for what he's done for us. That's actually how this passage starts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we bless God, we're giving him praise. When we bless God, we're giving him praise. And so we declare, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. John Stott, who was a a very prominent evangelical theologian and an Anglican rector in London, uh, said this about the doctrine of election. He said, therefore, the truth of God's election, however many its unresolved problems, should lead us to righteousness, not sin, and to humble, adoring gratitude, not boasting. Its practical consequences should always be that we live on the one hand holy and blameless before him and on the other to the praise of his glorious grace. So that's our response to God's salvation. We are chosen to be holy and blameless. We are chosen to be adopted as sons and daughters. We are chosen to turn outwards back towards him and give him praise to the praise of his glorious grace. But there's one final thing that we're chosen for. We are chosen for an inheritance. We're chosen for an inheritance. 
And this is connected to that idea of adoption. Because remember, an adopted child has all of the same rights and responsibilities as that of a birth child, a natural child. And one of those rights, one of those privileges, is to be called an heir of the one who adopted that person. And so the adopted child has access to to their own portion of the inheritance when their parents die. Unless specified some other way in someone's will, all of the children would equally share in that inheritance, and the adopted children included just as much as the natural ones. Adopted sons and daughters become heirs to their adoptive parents. And in Roman culture, in Greco-Roman society, this was one of the primary purposes of adoption. A lot of the time in Roman society, adoption didn't happen when someone was a, a baby or even a small child. Adoption would happen when someone who was wealthy and had resources but didn't have an heir needed someone to pass their riches onto. And so they would adopt someone to become their heir. Often they would adopt an adult to become their heir. Often they would adopt one of their slaves in their household to become their heir. And then that person would move from the status of slave in the household to the status of son, to the status of the rightful heir of everything that belongs to that master of the household. And when he died, that person would become the new master of the household. What do we inherit as chosen people of God? What do we inherit? Well, for one thing, we become inheritors of eternal life. We become inheritors of eternal life. Through Christ, we receive the blessing of eternal existence in God's presence in the heavenly places. We get to live with him as his adopted sons and daughters into eternity to the praise of his glorious grace. We also receive the things that we've already talked about. Salvation, the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says here, that one of the ways that we know that we receive this, one of the ways we know that we are heirs, is that we receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment of that which is to come. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glorious grace. The Holy Spirit is in us as Christians. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes that sanctification, that process of becoming holy, possible. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to be God's missionaries, who gives us the gifts required to reach out with God's saving love to those who don't know him. The Holy Spirit is responsible for everything that we do as Christians. The Holy Spirit is God living in us, breathing life into us, and helping to come alive that which was formerly dead. And so we also inherit, we get to participate in God's eternal plan, God's eternal economy, which is the the word here for, for plan. It says in verse 10, and this is perhaps the most amazing thing of all in this passage, We'll start in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven 
and things on earth. This is the destiny. This is the plan. This is the place that we are going. Christ is being restored as head over all things, over all of creation, both things in heaven and things on earth. And so imagine for a second something exploding outward and think of that as the chaos of this world because of sin. And in Christ, all of that is being drawn back to himself. All of it is being put back in subjection under him. That doesn't mean that all will be saved, but all will be put in subjection under him. Everything will be subdued, and everything will return to his perfect will and to his perfect reign. And we get to be participants in that. We get to be participants in this kingdom that he's developing. Later in this book, it says that we get to sit next to him in heaven, which is remarkable. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of this inheritance. We have inherited eternal life. We have inherited the blessings of eternal salvation. We have inherited the blessing of the blood of Jesus Christ, which watches over us, justifies us, and makes us whole. And we have inherited the Holy Spirit who's been given to us as a down payment of everything that is yet to come. This is our God. He's a God who chooses us before the foundations of the world. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he wants to do in each one of your lives. To the praise of his glorious grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for choosing us. We thank you for making your, us your sons and daughters by adoption and welcoming us into your family. We praise you for your salvation, which comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and the death that he died upon the cross. We pray, Lord, that your choosing of us would inspire praise in our lives to the praise of your glorious grace that our lives might reflect your glory. And that you would use us in your plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth under one head, your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.